You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's time for Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And uh, we've got our host on, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Phil Forsberg. And before we get started, we're going to do what we generally do before a veteran show. And we want to invite any veteran or veteran family member that's uh, listening or tunes in later to uh, go to our our website and take a look at it. We are very veteran-oriented. And uh, we always start a veteran show with a moment of silent prayer for our veterans and those that have given the ultimate sacrifice or those that uh, are in service now. And this also includes our first responders. So we'll be back right after this. thing on America's Web Radio on our veteran shows, and that is that we play a Jody, and we all know what Jodies are and how much they meant to us as we were uh, dragging our last quarter mile on a force run or on, as a drill sergeant had yelled double time, and uh, so here we go. We'll be back right after we get this Jody in. And we all did it at one time or the other. And uh, I think uh, remembering back on some of the Jodies, that was some of the best times we had as we were running and huffing and puffing. And uh, But we made it. And sometimes we made it with the help of our buddy, and sometimes we helped a buddy make it. So it worked both ways. And, uh, you know, it's uh, always a pleasure to do this show and... Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Forsberg is on with us. Good morning, sir. Hello, David. We're uh, well today. I am. We're ready to get going and um, talking about the subject today is going to be very interesting because, um, as we've all experienced, uh, 
this could be taken as an oxymoron if you look at uh, the recent past, but uh, we're going to be talking about strategic planning and how important it is for all branches, and it's not only for a branch, it's uh, as you're doing strategic planning, and, and uh, Phil, if I get off track, please straighten me out, but okay. it's uh, strategic planning includes everybody, and that's uh, the job that the Army's going to do or the Navy's going to do, and it's putting all the pieces together, coming up with a plan, and then activating that plan. Am I close to uh, factual? Well, yeah, you know, um, you can look at warfare, David, or, you know, technically for uh, in those military studies, they look at warfare in uh, basically three levels. And that is the tactical level, which is basically a battalion and maybe a brigade and below. Then you have the operational level, which would be all the way from a division up to uh, <clears throat> up to the combatant commander uh, who in Desert Storm was uh, General Schwarzkopf and then uh, from above the operational level is the strategic level and the strategic basically involves uh, the objections uh, the objectives of your nation so and strategic um, doesn't just include uh, conventional combat forces. It also includes um, diplomacy and uh, uh, economic and, uh, uh, you know, manufacturing and, uh, all, you know, all sorts of uh, means put together into a, a strategic uh, picture to accomplish national objectives. And I would assume that um, even even uh, civil affairs would be involved with that. Well, civil affairs is, is uh, involved at uh, at all levels, really, of warfare. Interesting. Um, that was my last assignment. Was uh, three tenths civil affairs. And uh, civil affairs. Um, you know, really became a, a growth industry in the Army Reserve. Um, uh, early on in my military career, they offered um, when I was, you know, choosing which uh, which branch of the Army I wanted to go in. They had a thing for community affairs, uh, and uh, it is not what civil affairs is. Civil affairs is completely different, um, especially. Depending on the um, the theater of operations that you're in, um, for instance, uh, in recent <clears throat> conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, civil affairs uh, involve basically uh, mixing it up with the uh, civilian population, and you know, uh, which can be very, very dangerous in a, in a place where you have insurgencies and. The enemy doesn't wear uniforms, and they don't observe, um, you know, protocols of uh, laws of land warfare. So, um, so you know, civil affairs, you know, 
I have a friend who got mobilized into the civil affairs unit. And he wound up going along on uh, you know kicking down doors, you know clearing buildings and the like. So that's very very different from community affairs. Oh yeah, that's uh, different from what my unit was doing. But uh, you know there there's always a need, and uh, it's. Uh, uh, this is what I always marvel at with the with the military and and certainly uh, your service and and other friends' service that uh, I guess the military doesn't have an answer for everything, but I would give them credit for having an answer or addressing many many issues that you know. A civilian probably wouldn't even think about, but we go in and we destroy a city, and they're they're out of electricity, they're out of water, they're out of this, they're out of that, and uh, there's no city council, there's no city government anymore, and uh, this was what our unit did was we were we were taught to go in and take over and run a city, and get the necessities that the people would need. And uh, thank goodness we didn't kick down any doors or anything, but uh, that's what we were trained to do was to to replace, uh, basically uh, put in a democratic uh, organization with the mayor or a symbolic mayor at the top and then go on down with city council and then the different uh, offices that needed and different functions that needed to be done in a city. And... Uh, you know, and you get a. I looked at it initially as sort of. I don't want to say a joke, but I, I didn't take it as serious as I did after I'd gotten in because, you know, you'd think, well, the Army goes in, they do this, they do that, and they win and they walk out. But that's not what our government does. Well, um,. Yeah, I mean, the, the first order of business is to go in and destroy civilization. And then afterward, you have to sort of recreate civilization with public utilities and, uh, uh, you know, community uh, affairs and uh, uh, administration uh, of the local laws. I mean... Uh, I don't know if you recall, but uh, after the uh, surrender of Japan in 1945, um, <clears throat> Douglas MacArthur essentially wrote the Japanese Constitution for their new government. Hmm. No, I did not. Well, one, I wasn't around, but two, uh, I, I didn't know that. And uh, that's interesting. So how would this fit into strategic planning well, of course, strategic planning begins with um, your uh, your regional commands. So, for instance, uh, we have um, Southcom that uh, is uh, in charge of uh, affairs in the Southern Hemisphere, or basically the Caribbean and, and uh, South America. Northcom. Uh, is the defense of the North American continent. Um, there's Pacific Command. There's uh, Central Command, which is sort of uh, 
Southeast Asia, or I'm sorry, Southwest Asia, Middle East, if you will. Um, <clears throat> there's AFRICOM, which is a, uh, you know, the, the African continent. Yukon uh, is the European continent. So, uh, so these regional commands all have, you know, commanders that uh, are responsible, and then um, so each year they come up with plans, and it's basically what if, what if, um, for instance, uh, China tries to take Taiwan. Well, so there are war planners at every uh, regional command, and they put together war plans, and um, it's quite an art. They study, uh, you know, for instance, uh, you know, well, what are the objectives? What do what we want to do? Or what are we possibly going to need to do? And so they apply um, units, right? Uh, so you have to have so much infantry and so much armor, so much artillery, and so much uh, carrier task force, uh, and so much uh, airlift, and so much fighter support and uh, air defense. And so they, so there are units that uh, are available. And uh, so we, they mission the units according to the various war plans, and the war plans are cataloged. And uh, but they have to think of everything uh, from you know uh, fighting to uh, sustaining and supplying um, medical, feeding, and water, uh, and uh, <clears throat> civil affairs as well. Uh, you know, how they're going to interact with the local populace. So all these things go into into war plans, and it's very important because these units, the more the more missioning that these various units get, the you know, the higher uh, level of resources they're applied in the budgeting process. So, um, you know, we don't just take money and, and dump it down the hole. They... Um, they uh, apply the money according to uh, the missions of the units, and they're they're in various tiers. Um, and uh, so, <clears throat> what tier you're in uh, determines what level of resourcing you're going to get. At, at what point? Um, I know we have a uh, a system, and you certainly know more about it than than I do, but. Uh, uh, at at what point of ready alert are the different units? How are they informed? Okay, we're going from uh, uh, two to one, or we're going from three to four. Uh, at what point are they notified that you know stand by, be ready, whatever? And where do you well, think we are right now with uh, <clears throat> looking at Russia? At what level of uh, alert are we at? Well, uh, I really have no way of knowing. Um, I don't know what the, what the various plans are. I know that uh, there are folks whose job it is to know um, what we could do, what we should do, uh, if 
you know, if our opponents do X, then we do Y. And, you know, they're necessarily kept uh, under wraps. Uh, and uh, so, <clears throat> but uh, as far as, uh, so there's mobilizations that happen, uh, of, you know, the reserve components and various uh, instruments of our nation, industrial mobilizations, and uh, but the uh, the deployments uh, come down from uh, you know from the higher headquarters and uh, the alerts for deployments uh, you know the, the orders to prepare and uh, <clears throat> those are according to the uh, the war plans and part of the war plans is oh I'm going to get this wrong but it's uh, we call it the tip fiddle or the uh, time phase troop deployment list and uh, for instance for Desert Storm we uh, you know the, the priority of receiving resources uh, you know supplies and various things to your unit was all based upon your positioning on this list and uh, the, the higher you are on the list the, the, the more emphasis they gave you for uh, repair parts and uh, you know whatever resources might be limited I recall um, there were some uh, units in uh, my brigade uh, I was in a separate brigade and uh, our battalion had been listed on the uh, tip fiddle but the uh, other two battalions in our brigade were not and uh, so when the when these chocolate chip uniforms came down, the, the Desert Storm uh, camouflage uniforms came down, uh, someone at the brigade uh, decided to give it to these other two battalions. And, uh, we, we didn't have them. And when, the, uh, when the planners discovered we didn't, that you know the 15th MI battalion had not received their uh, chocolate chips, and, uh, well... Basically, it was very embarrassing. Those others were told to give those uniforms back to uh, you know and give them to the 15th. So we um, and those units actually never wound up going. They were some of the very few units at, at Fort Hood that didn't deploy for Desert Storm. Well, not because of that. On on that uh, note of clothing. Let's uh, take a quick break, and we'll be back with Lieutenant Colonel Forsberg right after this. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right, and you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. 
This program, From Lawyers to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And you're listening to Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm with our host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Philip Forsberg. And I also want to mention, too, that uh, Phil plays a very, very important role as a service officer with the DAV. And some of you may ask that haven't listened to the show, what's a service officer? Well, a service officer is the person that has the answers to the veterans' questions or the veteran families' questions. And there are a lot of questions, uh, everything from burial rights to up and down the gambit, uh, benefits rights, and... uh, Phil is wonderful at it, and you can also go to other service organizations, the VFW, the American Legion, and they all have service officers that will help you get through a veteran situation. And that, who knows what that situation might be. It might be PTSD, it might be a problem with, with the VA, but they have service officers that will help. And uh, Phil's an expert at it, and we appreciate his previous service, and we appreciate what he's doing today, very much so. And it's very, very important. So, we're talking about uh, you all wearing green in in the sand. Yeah, well, we did have, uh, you know, we we deployed with our, our, what we call BDUs, the battle dress metal dress uniform that, um, you know, had the woodland pattern on it. Uh, so we, we had plenty of those. We had a, a limited number of, uh, of the chocolate chips, the desert uh, camouflage pattern. Uh, but we, uh, <clears throat> you know, the soldiers wore what they had. As long as it was a legitimate <laughs> uniform, they wore it. With a white T-shirt under it. Um, yeah, we... Well, you know, we had an olive drab shirt that we wore uh, with our BDUs. We'd always worn that as long as I was in. And then uh, when we got to Desert Storm, they came up with a less green, more brown uh, type of shirt to be worn underneath. Um, people wore what they had. We didn't have too many white T-shirts, so... <laughs> I was, uh, this shows how much older I am. I was in when uh, they had, uh, and they figured it out in Vietnam, that uh, uh, brass insignias, brass uh, rankings made very good targets. And so they, they came out with the uh, camouflage ranks, which I think was a very smart move. And... Uh, now they have it's. They've gone even further than that. Instead of a pin, it's a sonon uh, insignia, which I think is great. I must. I must admit that I have a little bit of a hard time distinguishing between a major and a lieutenant colonel with the oak leaf. But uh, 
I make it through since I don't have to salute any of them anymore. So, uh, but it 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 took us a while to get away from the the brass ranks, and uh, they made real good targets. Yeah, and uh, you know, of course, a, a fellow wearing a star or an eagle or or an oak leaf, you know, well, that's pretty good target, but. Imagine a fellow that's, uh, say, a master sergeant has three big yellow stripes and three <laughs> yellow rockers underneath it on his arm, on each arm. Um, kind of identifies him as being in a leadership position. So uh, it's it's better that they're uh, they're subdued. Um, we just wear where they today. I won't say we they, today they wear just a little velcro. Um, patch in the center of their chest that, that gives their rank. And, you know, it uh, <clears throat> takes a little getting used to. People have to learn, you know, where to look uh, on somebody who's approaching you to see if you're supposed to salute them or not. I mean, it's, a, it's actually kind of a good practice because it just keeps people alert to their surroundings, who's around them and such. Oh, I, I agree. That's... Uh... I was I was just in too early, and got out too early. But you know, I I guess we improve as as all war situations have produced new things, and we produce new ideas, and uh, and hopefully they're always positive and uh, there for the soldier to improve their. Attitude as well to improve their chances of getting out alive, and uh, they. It took a while in Vietnam to recognize the uh, the problem with the insignias, but once they did, they changed it. So there's always room for improvement. Yeah, and you know, it keeps moving. I mean, trust me, we have plenty of uh, or the. Or the various services all have plenty of, you know, their festive uh, uniforms, but they're for more pleasant circumstances yeah. than combat. Oh yeah, I uh, I had the opportunity to uh, uh, have lunch with um, Colonel White the other day, and he was in his dress blues, which when I was in, we were still our dress was still drab green. And uh, I really like the uh, dress blues that they've got. And as he was explaining to me, that goes back to even uh, the Civil War and, and uh, the Indian War, that the uh, infantry wore blue as opposed to the uh, drab green. That I guess that started in uh, World War II, correct? Yeah. I, uh, you know, of course, there's not a lot of colored pictures of World War One, but uh, I think they wore kind of a... Their fatigue uniform was kind of a, a green brown, um, but you know uh, the, the the idea of us wearing a blue uniform for our army uh, basically comes from uh, the UK uh, or the, the British. The British wore red coats, and the uh, their musicians wore blue because hmm. they're. Uh, their colors of their um, 
of, of their flag were red, white, and blue. Well, ours are also red, white, and blue, but we distinguished our army from theirs when our um, our soldiers wore blue and our musicians still wear, typically wear red. Hmm. Um, and so... Um, I think if you go to see uh, an, an army band concert, they may wear a dress blue uniform, but their their hats are red because they're, they're musicians. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, and but the the stripe uh, on the pants was uh, was indicative of the branch of the army that you were in. So the infantry was a light blue. And the uh, the cavalry was yellow, and the uh, artillery was red. Hmm. And then the other, like Signal Corps, has their color, and the engineers and such, uh, quartermaster. But the um, the three main uh, combat arms: infantry, cavalry, and uh, artillery. You know, had the three primary colors of of uh, blue, yellow, and red. The uh, the soldiers in the uh, in the Indian Wars, uh, especially the cavalry, uh, they would wear their pants uh, at all times. But uh, they would often take their blue coats and roll them up and stuff them in their saddlebags. And consequently, their their pants became um, a more faded blue, and the, uh, their coats remained kind of that dark blue. And so uh, that's why Army uh, dress blue uniforms to this day, you know, have basically a two-tone effect with uh, with the light blue pants and a dark blue uh, coat. Interesting. You know, when I was just thinking the only um, with my dress uniform was the green dress uniform, and the only color I had on it was the braid, my blue, my light. Baby blue braid, uh, right, and that was it. And that just distinguished that I was infantry. Yeah, and I think infantry typically wear a, a blue plastic uh, disc underneath their uh, cross rifles disc on the on the um, on the enlisted man uh uniform. Right, that's true. Well. <laughs> It was true back then. I don't know what it is today. I, I, uh, th- th- for some reason, they won't let an old man play anymore. So, yeah, I, it's I, okay. I can't David, I know uh, it's a hard pill to swallow, but uh, it, that uh, military service is pretty much a young man's game. That is a hard pill, but, uh, you know, sometimes that old man. Uh, still has a good memory but with that being said we're going to have to take a break and uh, we'll be back with lieutenant colonel retired phil forsberg talking about uniforms desert chill desert storm and what's going on today we'll be right back do you love classic and special interest cars? If so, listen to our podcast every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time here on America's Web Radio. Or find us on your favorite podcast site, iTunes, Spotify, or any of the others out there. We'll talk about classic cars. We'll talk to car guys. We'll talk to clubs that are here at our facility here in Classic Auto Mall. And we'll also talk about Classic Auto Mall and how we can help you sell your classic or special interest car. So give us a listen every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Thanks. 
If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And you're also listening to Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And I want to throw out that if you go to our homepage, you can become a patron, and we have added some new things and new advantages to being a patron on with America's Web Radio. And it helps support programs like... Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and remembering uh, that we support all branches of the military and also our first responders, our first responders, which uh, fortunately in my lifetime I've gotten to be. I was in the military and the and also uh, a first responder, and you can grow up real quick in any of those branches. So with that, we've been talking about uniforms with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Forsberg. And uh, I think the evolution of uniforms is, is also very interesting. And even to the point of we go back to Vietnam again. And uh, when we got to Vietnam, they were still wearing the the black leather boots that the Army had issued, and there was just a tremendous outbreak of foot problems in uh, Vietnam. And so they went to a different type of boot that wouldn't hold the water like the black boots did, and uh, they were camouflaged, and they were also, they had mesh in them where at night you could put them out and they'd basically dry and not have the problems with the continued moisture causing all the foot problems. And um, I guess, would you say that uh, across the board, the military is looks for adaptability, Phil? They do uh, on their own terms. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, <clears throat> you know, the story comes to mind with me, uh, if, if you uh, if you're in the army or in the marines, you're not permitted by the uniform regulations to carry an umbrella in uniform. <laughs> However, in the navy and in the air force, uh, you are uh, permitted to carry an umbrella in uniform. And uh, of course, the marines won't change because the army won't change, but the Army's uh, reasoning for that is much more, um, m- much deeper because uh, it's a, it's a safety uh, feature. The the Army learned many many years ago that umbrellas have a tendency to panic the horses, and so to this day, you know, in, in the Army, you can't carry an umbrella in uniform. It's just 
it's a safety thing. You don't want to start a stampede down at the stables. <laughs> so, yes, yes, they're constantly uh, morphing, but on their own terms. Um, it's uh, they. Uh, you're speaking of the dress uniform. They have a different uh, kind of dress uniform they use today in the army, um, and it's more of a it's more of a uh, brown uh, uh, kind of uh, jacket with uh, um, I think they're kind of harkening back to World War II and the uh, what they used to call the pinks and greens um, it's, it's an interesting and it, of course it, the advent of that is uh, <clears throat> within the last several years I retired from active duty on um, in 2011, so it's since then they've come up with this, and I saw uh, a general giving a, a briefing uh, at one time wearing this uniform, and I thought it was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. I couldn't figure out what service he was in, <laughs> but uh, then I noticed he had a, a combat patch on his right shoulder from an Army division. I said, well, that must be the new Army uniform. Interesting. Uh, I certainly haven't seen it, and... Uh there was a well. I don't think it ever became official, or at least to my knowledge. But uh, the Eisenhower jacket, yeah, that was a sort of a short-waisted uh, jacket, pretty pretty informal, I would say. And uh, yet Eisenhower made it very popular, and <laughs> it became a uh, popular coat for civilians as well. Yeah. And of course, we have a a, a mess uniform, uh, a mess blue uniform that has a a short jacket like that, uh, similar to a tuxedo, for you know formal evening occasions. First time I saw that was uh, my professor of military science in the ROTC program wore that to our dining in, and uh, I. Uh, I told him I thought it looked like a lion tamer's outfit. <laughs> From the circus, huh? <laughs> All he needed was a whip and a chair. <laughs> and a top hat. And a top hat, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I guess there's uh, When we're talking uniforms, do they have to be... Is it just the branch that approves, or do they have to be congressionally approved? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. My last tour in the Army, I was assigned at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, and we shared a building with uh, an organization that is, uh, I learned a lot from from talking to their director. Their director was a retired Marine colonel, uh, and this organization is called the Institute of Heraldry. And it's not the Army Institute of Heraldry. It, it, it comes under the Department of the Army, but the Institute of Heraldry does heraldry for every um, military organization it, uh, to include the Coast Guard, um, the other uniformed services, which uh, include the Public Health Service and the National Oceanographic uh, Atmospheric Administration. Um, they do uh, 
heraldry for uh, federal, all federal agencies, you know, police departments, uh, law enforcement of, of each different agency. Uh, it's quite an interesting organization, a lot of artists and uh, researchers and history buffs. And so uh, I would imagine that any, you know, official uniform has to go through the Institute of Heraldry for at least for their approval and then uh, or, or their comment um, because every color means something uh, every little device um, you know an eagle or, or an anchor or you know a scroll of some sort or a dagger or what, whenever they whenever they want a new unit patch for uh, a, a new unit they're forming up in the army all it has to go through the Institute of Heraldry for approval Hmm. And uh, so I suppose um, they can, you know, uh, with buy-in from the Institute of Heraldry, they can have basically whatever they want. Uh, of course, if you want to buy the uniform, you have to get them from an appropriation from Congress, so it's part of your budget. But the uh, the Army has a laboratory in Natick, Massachusetts, that does a lot uh as far as developing uh, uniforms and, and other things uh, for the for the army and, and the other forces, um, so you know a lot goes into something like that. Um, whenever they want to, in other words, they don't just do it on a whim. No, and I was just thinking uh, they they make a change, and it's not just one or two people doing it; it's millions. And uh, it affects millions of people. And, sure. you know, if they were to change sergeant stripes for some reason, it's not just one person that would change. It would be, you know, from coast to coast and around the world. And it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a big deal. And, you know, I think you and I brushed by this one time. And, you know, it's uh, walking down the street and you're in uniform and you're approaching someone that's in uniform. And there's still some, you know, it's like I've always, only because I had a great friend that his father was a merchant marine. And uh, that's sort of been a misplaced whatever. And yet... Merchant Marines played a big part in, certainly in World War II, and without any armament or anything else, many of them died uh, giving their lives for their country. And a lot of folks don't even know what the Merchant Marines were and are, but they're the ones that supply our soldiers. Yeah, the, the Merchant Marine... Uh you know, there's there's all sorts of laws of land warfare and laws of sea warfare, and uh, so the merchant ships uh, basically were not supposed to be armed vessels. Um, however, um, during World War II, and the you know Nazi uh, U-boats were sinking a lot of our merchant ships. Uh, there, <clears throat> they put. Uh, they put weapon systems on them that uh, basically, I, if I'm not mistaken, had to be manned 
by our U.S. sailors uh, from the Navy. So the Navy had their own contingency contingent group uh, on on these merchant vessels. But the the merchant sailors of of uh, World War II were actually uh, covered. They're, the, those who folks who serve in merchant marine today are not. But the ones that served during World War II are actually covered by a Veterans Administration. That's good, and they should be. They they played a major role in uh, World War II, and um, and again, <clears throat> it goes back to our discussion on uniforms. And uh, I I don't even know, did they have naval ranking in the Merchant Marines? Um, yeah, they they have something similar to it um you know essentially the navies around the world have a have a similar uh ranking system to them um to indicate uh you know captain and below and uh you know in the uh i know my father was a, a sonarman during world war ii and his rank insignia uh and also included a little symbol to designate that he was a sonarman. Hmm. Um, and the others had, you know, little symbols to indicate that they were radio men or machinists' mates or uh, hospital corpsmen or um, whatever. They're, it's all kind of integrated into their uh, rank insignia. I had no idea. Um, that's very interesting. Uh, okay, back to our <laughs> our situation at hand, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Uh, are our veterans getting the recognition now that they should get from Desert Shield and Desert Storm? They, <clears throat> well, you know, I, I don't want to speak for all the, the hundreds of thousands that served in that conflict, but uh, there's there's been a uh, a good effort, I'd say, um, to to recognize the effort there. Um, we I think we did a pretty good job, and uh, you know we kind of that was the last time we really engaged in uh, uh, any kind of um, high level. Uh, land warfare, conventional warfare. Um, and, uh, of course, we made pretty short work of, uh, of Saddam and his 41 divisions. But, um, you know, I'm more, more concerned that our soldiers get, um, and sailors and airmen and marines, get the, uh, the support that uh, is due to them through the Veterans Administration. As you mentioned, I'm a service officer, disabled American veterans, and the bulk of the work I do uh, is to help veterans uh, get the benefits that they've earned, and that in many cases they don't know they're entitled to. And uh, so it's, uh, you know, we can always do better, but uh, I feel as though we've, we've done a good job. There's many guys uh, who've served uh, a lot longer and a lot more arduous uh, tours um, than, than I did, 
uh, in, in just in recent years, and uh, and unfortunately, you know that's that's going to continue. There's going to be more uh, conflicts, um, and we, you know, like you said over and over again, David, uh, we really we really need to protect our republic. We really need, um, you know, high quality uh, young men and women willing to. Um, to serve in these various uh, jobs that we have. I recall, um, you know, I was commissioned in the Army in 1982, and uh, it was, uh, we were sort of still recovering from uh, from the bad times of Vietnam, and uh, there were a lot of drug problems in the services and a lot of um, race relations problems, race riots, you know, uh, and... You know, a lot of the very high-quality people that we had had left the service because they didn't want to be part of it. They were frustrated and uh, not recognized for their service. So they left, and uh, the folks who stayed in, um, well, to say the mid-level management in both officer and non-commissioned officer corps, when I was commissioned, uh, seemed to be very lacking. and I'm worried that we, you know, we might be entering a, a stage like that. Uh, but you know, uh, so Desert Storm, uh, Desert Shield took place in 1990. So I had been in the Army uh, eight years at that time, and uh, there had been a real transformation, um, a lot more emphasis on uh, our defense, the quality of our uh, weapon systems, and our tactics and our leadership uh, have really come about quite a bit and uh, so uh, I'm hopeful that we'll continue to have um, bright uh, young people uh, signing up for military service because I don't I don't want to see our uh, our republic go down the tubes because we weren't prepared. Well, one of, one of the things on a side note, sort of, that I'm very encouraged about is the number of veterans that are running for office this year. I think I heard the fact that uh, it's more military veterans running for office than since after World War II, immediately after World War II. And I, I thoroughly support veterans running for office and can make a difference you know I've, I've always been very nervous about someone that's never served in the military making up the rules of engagement or choosing military armament or anything else because they don't know what the hell they're talking about but you know I just uh, I'm very excited about the number of uh, veterans that are running for uh, political offices from the House of Representatives to the Senate and so forth, and many, many on a local basis as well. So uh, we will support any veteran that's running for office within reason. And I think it's, uh, I think it's great that they're doing it. And, you know, there's something about the military and there's something about the person that serves particularly in the military of today, our all-volunteer military. 
And, you know, once a giver, always a giver. And once a lover of your flag and your country, and you want to continue that when you get out of the military. And that's what we're seeing with uh, many, and what we're seeing anyway, with many of our uh, veterans running for office. They want to support their country, and they realize what we're looking at and what's what's trying to come towards us, and they don't they want to stop it. And I think that's great. Yeah, um, I so I do applaud those uh, who have military service that uh, you know are willing to serve uh, in elected office, and um, for the most part, I would I would support any of them. Uh, you know, we used to have a saying uh, in the army that uh, nothing's impossible for the man who doesn't have to do it, <laughs> and uh, it, you know it's important that the folks who are making policies that are could cost uh, our young people their lives in the military service. You know, may have done these things in the past and know uh, what's involved. But uh, I'm, I noticed a troubling um, trend uh, during my time in the Pentagon. Uh, you know, I would go sometimes for, for medical help uh, to uh, Walter Reed for my health care, Walter Reed Army Hospital in D.C. And I would see E-4s and E-5s uh, from all the various services that had lost eyes and arms and legs and other body parts and uh, and then I would go back to the Pentagon and I'd observe general officers who um, didn't have the courage to tell uh, Congress the way things really are and uh, it almost seemed to me that uh, we expect bravery Encourage from our young men to charge a machine gun nest when we're paying them as a private or jump on a grenade or, you know, something like that to save their comrades. But, you know, you pin stars on somebody and he's, he's just had such a uh, level of success, he can only think about uh, himself and his own military career, his uh, career in retirement, whether he want, has political aspirations or wants to be on the board of some um, some you know defense contractors uh, board of directors uh, just to me it's uh, it's shameful and um, uh, you know I see um, anyway uh, that's enough on that I don't want to name names but uh <laughs> People can draw their own conclusions. Well, you know, it's like some of the things that are happening today politically. Um, and through the pandemic and so forth. And you go back and you look at history. Um, our politicians and our government have really never been honest and this is a shame because this is not what our founding fathers wanted. 
They wanted transparency and honesty coming from our government so all of the people could trust the people that we voted for. And uh, I don't mean to be getting up on a soapbox, but it's a, it's a shame in many regards. And, uh, you know, I've known everything from uh, E1s up to, you know, two- and three-star generals, and it's still the man that's wearing the rank. The rank doesn't wear the man, but sometimes the rank gets to the man. And uh, I've seen sergeants that think they can walk on water, you know, because they may got that sixth stripe or that seventh stripe, and and they think that they, uh, you know, they, they are now officers when they're not. They're NCOs. And yes, they're command NCOs, but they're not officers. So, you know... Well, even officers have standards of conduct. And, you know, the, the higher the rank that you're wearing, the more concern you should be having for those under you. Yes, sir. And this is... Uh, I hate to go off on a personal note, but this is one thing that I applaud my son that's a major. Uh, he takes care of his men, and he takes care of his men first, and then himself second. And uh, I I respect him highly for that, and uh, he's very well appreciated by the people that serve under him. So, with that being said... We've about gone through another program time, Phil. And as always, you know, this is one reason I love doing this show and many of the shows that we do. I've learned more, and I enjoy learning. And you're a very good teacher, my friend. And like you said about being in the circus, uh, you have a memory like some... Like people focus on the circus sometimes, but uh, no, you're just incredible, and I thank you for your service in our military, and look forward to uh, next week. Thank you, David. Talk to you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.